I think that the obstacle, the big one, is that you're always preaching to the choir. It's very difficult to engage people that it's not even interested. That was Olga talking about the challenge of creating mental health initiatives with broad reach within businesses. The problem is the people who already care get involved and those that aren't affected don't. Olga is a TPM at Expedia. She's originally from Venezuela and is now living in Toronto. She's also an active YouTuber with her channel Cronopio. Growing up in a Latino community with an alcoholic father and a stoic mother, Olga learned that you don't complain and you don't talk about your feelings. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, Olga shares the difference she sees between somebody serious about suicide versus someone using it as a cry for help. She speculates why mental health is a taboo subject in the Latino community. And finally, she exhorts us all to open up and talk about our feelings. Remember, Olga and I are just two people talking about our experiences living with and managing mental illness. If anything you hear makes you maybe want to change the way you're thinking about treating whatever it is you're dealing with, please consult with your care team before you do. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Olga. Olga, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So, Olga, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Hmm. I'm a human being. <laughs> so, I'm a Venezuelan uh, living in Montreal, and I work for Expedia. Uh, I have five years there, the same time that I have in, in Montreal, and I work as a TPM. And also, recently, I have my YouTube channel, so um, I'm, I'm trying to, to learn the ropes. Uh, it's very interesting, very complex, so, but I enjoy the process a lot. What's your YouTube channel called? What's it about? Um, it's called Mujer Cronopio. Uh, and the Cronopios are like uh, the creative people, the wacky people, real people. And then you have the famas, which are the, you know, the nine to five, all organized and, you know, all bureaucratic bureaucratic so my channel is called like that because i'm a cronopio and i'm trying to be a little bit more you know of a fama so that helps actually that increase my mental health uh, or my mental illness situation what have been some of the issues that you faced with mental health oh well the the big elephant is uh, suicide uh first time that i attempted actually attempted was i was 15 I didn't know that it could be a illness. I thought I was weak and a coward. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 am, I am realizing now that I am almost 40, that maybe I'm a little sick. Um, but I have my, you know, my legs in good shape, my organs working. Apparently my brain should follow, but it doesn't. <laughs> so There's a lot of words of judgment. I'm hearing in there oh, as you talk about your experience. Yes, yes. From myself, I think from my community, from my family, 
Um, I belong to the Latino community. So we are very judgmental um, because in my community, the value that you have if, if you're strong. So having a mental illness is weakness. You know, you have a weakness. You have to overcome that. You have to be strong, right? So that is not part of you. It's something that you have to, like, even execute. Like, you know, you have to kill it somehow. You don't talk about it. It doesn't exist. Move on. Would the same be true if you mentioned your legs and your organs worked? Like, if you had cancer, say, would it be the same attitude in the Latino community? No. <laughs> so I recently shared a meme, a meme <laughs> for the Latino community. And it says, uh, like, if you broke your leg, you receive cars, you receive flowers, you receive, oh, poor thing. But if you're depressed, <sighs> silence. And you say you can only speak for the Latino community, but I don't think that's unusual. Like, I, I almost want to say, like, what is the community where you get a card if you're depressed? Because like, I don't know what it is. Yeah, true that. You have a good point. You have a very good point. <laughs> but maybe we should start. Next time you're depressed, let me know and I'll send you a card. Thank you, James. Thank you. <laughs> I will. You talked a little bit about your experience with anxiety and depression um, and suicide. I wonder if we can kind of rewind. I think you said the first time you experienced um, possible anxiety, I think, was around 15. Or was that the first time you experienced? It's a suicide attempt, uh, 15, yeah. And that was, a, that was an attempt, so it was something you made a plan and tried to, to follow through on. Yeah, actually, uh, it was not that planned. It was uh, the impulsive kind. I was depressed and, and such. So that night, my grandpa died. My parents went to my uh, grandpa's house and such, and I was alone. And I took the a revolver from my dad. And I, you know, I I get the bullets out. I put just one, and I played the the roulette, the the Russian roulette. Boom. And I pointed the gun to my head and uh, at the last moment thought about uh, I couldn't do that to her. And I point the gun to the wall and I pulled the trigger and the bullet was there. Yeah, so when my parents got back, there was a hole in the wall and I don't know if they <laughs> believed me. I, I, did, I don't know still. And I know it was an accident and this or that, and, and that, uh, yeah, was, was it. That was about as close as it gets, I would imagine. So, like, where did you go from, from there? Like, forget it happened and just move on, or? So I realized that I didn't have the guts <laughs> to do it. I still fantasize a lot with it and uh, fantasize with another thing. So I started to write. My short stories are still very dark <laughs> in that sense. I, I plan to kill also my dad. And this is, I think, the first time that I say that, uh, you know, in public. Uh, and it was very tough. I, I was a lot of plans. And basically, my, my, my way to deal with this was asking God every day to kill me. Like... Um, 
if it's an accident, it's honorable. Uh, I'm not going to be judged and uh, my mom can recover somehow. Um, so I pray, I pray a lot, like God, please. There are so much people dying. I'm a waste of resources. I don't want to be here. Take me away. I am not religious anymore. <laughs> so yeah, I didn't, I didn't find, uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't find anything for me there. So, and it's very like, you have to be blind. You have to be numb, uh, to, to be with you know, to flow with that. So for me, I, I you know, the, nomen, the numbness worked until I was uh, 34 that I came here, but not anymore. I'm hesitant to use the words blind and numb. Like they're like, there's judgment in, judgment in them. Like I might say that somebody who has a, like a religious system that's working for them, like they've found something that works for them right now I, I have a problem when that crosses over into like we must convert everybody else everybody else who doesn't believe this thing is an idiot or people can't do something because my religion says they can't do it um but you know I, i'm sometimes kind of almost envious of people who found that faith and that comfort because it does feel like my eyes are open like see like well i, I get from a neurological level why we need our brains need religion because we need to believe that somebody's in control. We need to believe there's structure and reason, you know, for things. And it's really fucking hard to say, like, at the end of the day, we are apes. We're on a rock. We're going through the universe at 300,000 miles an hour. Um, and eventually our sun will explode and, and eat this planet. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not a reason to get up every day, is it? You know? So, like, I, I see why, like, that, that, kind of antidote of like, okay, there's, I can't see the system, but the system is there and it's there for a reason. I just put faith in it and everything works out. Okay. Like I'm okay with that. As long as you're not telling me what, what I have to do. So, uh, I studied philosophy also for six years. So when you study philosophy, uh, you break somehow and you became, you become a, a, a little, uh, cynic. Um, and you put your beliefs like in, in suspension, like the car. So it's, it's, it's confusing for me. The religion is not there for me. Science or is another thing, but yeah, I, 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 I see uh, where you're coming from. After 15, you, you know, after 15 and your suicide attempt, you move kind of on through life, you're writing, um, you know, short stories, there's darkness in them. Like, you know, you have some patriocidal fantasies. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but let's call it that. Um, you know, and then, you know, with your wife, you know, she eventually talks you into going to therapy because you're being very self-destructive. Like what other milestones are there between those two places that shaped your life? That first therapy for me, uh, didn't went, uh, you know, deep enough. So it was like a patch, right? And, and helped me to continue. Uh, then, uh, you know, came out was the other thing that I have to manage. For me, it was easy internally. Uh, being gay for me was, uh, you know, if the person has a vagina or a penis, it doesn't make a difference for me, to be very honest. But I always thought about my mom again. And, you know, she's going to be affected by that and such and such. So so I, I hit that part of me, I guess, until I, 
I decided to come here to Canada and got married. For the first time, I was away for the familiar views, right? So that was good and bad <laughs> because uh, my wife got sick and she had to go back to, to Venezuela to have, uh, you know, treatment, etc. Uh, and I was alone here. And the suicide came over again. And I really planned it. Uh, this time was, uh, but um, I didn't have guns here. So it was a problem. And I didn't know how to find one. And I was very scared of the, you know, getting arrested or, or something like that because I was new here. I thought about the metro thing, you know, jump. But you can stay alive. You can, you know, it's, it's not like 100% uh, unfeelable. And uh, you can traumatize another person, which is the driver. And it happens a lot. The suicide thing, it's, it's not easy uh, when you think about it. It's very risky and you have to do it properly or don't do it at all because it's going to be forever. <laughs> so, you know, it's like technicalities that you have to think. And I don't know why, but I think when you're serious about suicide and it's not just something to get the attention, you plan and you really search and investigate and, and, and do all your research for that. So I did this. Then my wife came back and I was like, okay, she's, she's here. I'm more stable. I decided what I think changed my life. And it was, I was open with her. So I told her finally how I felt for the first time. And uh, I would say like, we were like together for 11 years. And for the first time, I was completely open. I, 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 I'm disgusted with, you know, by myself. I hate myself. I hate my body. I hate my brain. I hate myself so much um, that I wanted to disappear. And she was like, "All right, so it's fine. So we need to get help." So that was the first reaction, and she was like my hero at that point. And uh, I went to the doctor here. Uh, she was a Latino doctor here in Canada. I went there and it was awful because I had to admit to a stranger that I wanted to kill myself. And then you you are interrogated, like, you know, uh, the inquiries begin and you're treated like maybe, maybe because I guess that the, the thought process is that you want pills. And it was awful. And then she asked and asked more. And when I say the thing about 15 and the gun, oh, she's serious. So <laughs> I, 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 you know, I noticed the, the change in the expression, the fashion expression. Okay, here is, the, here is the referral for a psychiatrist. I feel that I was dying. You know, going to a psychiatrist for me was, okay, you failed. You didn't pass the test right? So I went to this guy and this guy, you know, asked me like two things. I cry, I cry and I cry and I cry in that, in that period in Venezuela, there was a lot of uh, protest and a lot of dead people. And my mom was there. My family was there. I was glued to the news like all day, all night. And I didn't know that I was in a mourning process for my country. Uh, actually, there is a syndrome called the Ulysses uh, syndrome uh, for the immigrants. And you have to mourn your country. And, and, and it's something that affects you even because the thing is that you are in so much pressure to get a life together from scratch again that you don't pay attention to that, right? The psychiatrist gave me my uh, 
I have not the pills here, but give me my pills, antidepressants and, and all the pills and such. Oh my God, I fell again. Now I have to take pills. I'm doomed. <laughs> From here, I'm going to become an addict. Uh, but then I started the medication and my wife told me, hey, you know that I take antidepressants for this time or such because this and that. I didn't knew that. For me, it was like, you know, something that I wanted not to see so much that I erased that from everywhere. Right. So, well, I started my pills like two and a half years ago. Uh, sometimes I'm like, oh no, I'm still taking pills. Something is not going well, but now I understand better, uh, that it's a chemical imbalance that I need that help us. I would need it for my heart or for, you know, my thyroid or anything else. So getting back to uh, talking about the, the stigma that you face, particularly in your community, one of my previous guests made the observation that the stigma comes from the Puritan work ethic, where if you can put your shoulder to the plow, um, then you are kind of a valu valuable, good human being. And like, if you couldn't put your shoulder to the plow because your leg was broken in half, obviously, then like, okay, we'll let you off plow duty. Um, but then if you're like, well, I can't put my shoulder to the plow because my brain's all messed up. Like, that's just not acceptable. That was his kind of cultural way of thinking about it. Like, it comes from the Puritan work ethic that founded the US. You're from Venezuela. And so I'm wondering, like, what, what that chain might be in Venezuela. It's interesting because uh, when I think about it, it's, it's very similar. And, and we're talking here about knowledge workers and uh, knowledge workers are supposed to have a good machine, which is the brain. What if this brain is not working? So you're not reliable. For example, in Venezuela, when you're going to, to a recruiting process, if you're pregnant, no, no, no. Ciao, ciao. You know, it's, it's like you are not allowed to give us 100%. Because mental illness prevents you, you know, for giving me that. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, in in my case, it's odd because like I I have like I can give one hundred and fifty percent or fifty percent. Like one hundred percent is really hard for me because I'm bipolar, and so it's like I'm either flying higher or, or I'm yeah. like really not functioning. But uh, you make a great a great point. So I'm starting to wonder, like, do we think of work the same way? nation by nation like have we all adopted this same idea that like if you work from for a company or whatever like you have to be able to be there 100 percent of the time at 100 percent capacity at all times is that just what we believe yeah because uh because otherwise you are not competent enough imagine that you are competing for promotions you are competing in your career path to you know uh get to a certain level if you're not fully competent in that sense, the one that can give a steady 100%, is he going to receive the promotion? You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. And it's that scarcity again. Like, it's that ape taking a step up the ladder to get, you know, I don't know, access to the berries before everybody else or something like that. 
like you talk about the paleolithic brain, that whole idea of promotion, you are a better person because you promoted, now you're promoted, you get access to more resources, which might mean money in your bank account or more people that you can tell, you know, what to do. It feels to me like it's still that paleolithic structure. Yeah. And, and if you think now that you mentioned that, I think about the neurodiversity. If, if you have an environment where you accept that there is neurodiverse, you have to implement different processes for different people. So you cannot standardize. So you have to work more in terms of you know, maintaining your resource. So is a company willing to invest in that? It seems like the last priority in the queue. I've definitely seen that where people... Um you know, people weren't asked to like, hey, let's put some real, you know, metal behind this, you know, topic of diversity and inclusion or inclusivity or neurodiversity have kind of come back to like, well, you know, but we, you know, have these other priorities or these other things are really important or, you know, we've got to be, you know, efficient with how we use our resources and using that much of somebody's time doesn't seem, you know, kind of efficient. And then you get into the next step, which is then trying to kind of explain away why diversity and inclusion is important, which is always frustrating, but um, unfortunately happens. Yeah. And, and I think uh, if we, if we, if we can turn the wheel somehow, I would say don't standardize the way people work. Because I know if you have another environment being a bipolar or I, ha I have another environment being an anxious person, I can give you more, you know, because I don't have the pressure to perform to a certain level that at some point I cannot achieve because I, I am not there. But it doesn't mean that you cannot count on me. You know what I mean? The problem is that, for example, being a TPM, I have to be successful planning a quarter what if a week of that quarter i feel so bad that i cannot follow up right so how how do we think about this balance when i can feel you know i can feel that i can work with you for you but also that doesn't put like a sore on my throat Like every time I think about I'm not performing, I'm not giving you what you need, you know, it's, it's more anxiety to my bucket. So I sometimes I, I just explode and I don't know what to do. What happens when you explode? Like a figure of speech or like you literally kind of verbally explode? I can verbally explode. You know, after the fact, it's like, oh, fudge, what did I do? Right. So and, and I'm a woman in tech, which is another another subject. Right. So if you explode, you're too bitchy. If you don't explode, you're too passive. So so as a woman, you need to be steady. But also having a mental illness like I have, I, I, I cannot be steady. It does drive me crazy that kind of because I, I mean, I've seen that so many times the woman who like speaks up or like takes a strong stand on something is like kind of bitchy or uncooperative or whatever. And of course the guy that does the same thing is like, Oh, and he's like tough and assertive. I'm like, Oh, this is such bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and even, even if the environment uh, doesn't push for that, you feel it. And, and you all the time, like evaluating your, your behavior. So it's a lot of pressure and, 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 Sometimes you, you, you want to go 
with the flow and you know meditate but sometimes you want to you know <laughs> throw everything through the window and run what i feel when i'm in that situation is that i can i i i want to like scratch my skin and you know just get out of there so i booked myself a meeting room and i try to calm down but sometimes i say like what are they thinking about me i'm in the room again oh god you know it's it's like this voice that doesn't allow me to think or function well what are some of the other things that bring on anxiety for you at work i, I think that the the worst is when i when i'm not uh when i know i'm not performing and i know that someone is going to realize that and they are going to complain i have a very demanding group of uh users uh they are very involved in the tool that i manage And sometimes they schedule meetings that I'm supposed to schedule myself. So they, they do the work for me because they don't wait for me to do it. You know, if we think about it through the paleolithic lens you know, in anxiety, your, I guess, cortisol, I think is really high, which is like, which is the stress hormone. So, you know, you're in a bad place from a paleolithic standpoint because your stress is through the roof. You, you have to play your brain actually so and that's what i'm investigated investigating from the last three years how to trick my brain because it's a machine it's it's it doesn't have to take over so if you levels of cortisol are you know high there are plenty of things that you can do but in this fast paced environment Uh, that we work, <laughs> you know, sometimes there is no time to, you know, to use all these beautiful techniques that we have. I wonder, you said there are tricks. And when you say tricks, I think hacks, shortcuts, right? But I'm wondering if you're, are you truly tricking or hacking your brain or are you trying to reprogram your brain? It's more reprogram actually now that uh, you know the the neuroplasticity is a thing uh, there are plenty of resources actually um, i'm taking a course to be a coach in neuro based on neuroscience so sometimes you have to think about your brain not only your brain is the body is the whole thing because they discover that we have neurons on our heart and the heart uh, holds memories for example the gut, you know, like the entrails are the second brain. So it's a system and you have to treat it as a system and you, and you can reprogram your brain. That's the, the, the work. Sometimes you have to be hacky though. There are definitely times that you have to hack when, you know, reprogramming is not going to happen fast enough for one, right? That's cool. How did you find coaching? My father was an alcoholic. So I was the parent since I was seven, so to speak. So I'm very good at um, reading people and helping people. I don't like the word coaching. It's more like being with a person and actually give your attention and be a, be a mirror for that person. And if I have the tools, and for me, the tools are not like more esoteric things for me, like the law of attraction and all this thing. For me, it's science. I'm an engineer after all. So I need science to back up all this. So this, this class that I'm taking, it's more science oriented. As a coach, I would say coaching is a very powerful way of, can be a very powerful way of changing kind of habits, behaviors of doing that reprogramming. 
um, you know, it's not a, unfortunately it's not an art, you know, an article that you read on Buzzfeed. That's like, here's 15 ways to like stop anxiety tomorrow. It's like, that's not going to work, but, um, definitely, you know, if you're willing to put the work and energy in with a coach, it can make a big, can make a big difference. Yeah, I think uh, definitely therapy, like uh, you have to deal with your growing process, basically, because your mom and dad form you as a person, somehow your culture, and sometimes you didn't have the, the, the tools to process all that information. So you process it the way you could, which is not good sometimes. So you have to do this therapeutic, uh, you know, work. But actually, I think the coach, it's more like hands on. So I have this, but if you open processes that are, you know, too big, of course, people need to do therapy. It's for everyone. I, 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 I was, I was not a believer. Like it, this sounds like a cult, but it's not like that. It's just, <laughs> Any sentence that starts with, it sounds like a cult. <laughs> yeah, it's bad, it's right? It's a cult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it... <laughs> It's, it's trying to, to, to know yourself, right? And, and this is prescribed since, uh, since Socrates, like know thyself. So it's, it's a thing that you have to do. Sometimes you can spend your life and all, the whole life and you die and you don't know yourself. You just go with the flow. But for people like us, maybe with a mental illness, it's important to do this, this, this work. We talked earlier on about how kind of the fear of coming out with a mental illness is that stigma and judgment and non-acceptance and that you're weak and, you know, kind of less of a person. But in many cases, I found exactly the opposite to be true, which I bet you have too, which is people will tell you like, oh, you're so like courageous and it's inspiring and thank you and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And in a strange way, I almost want us to get to a point where that's not true again, where you come and standing on a stage and saying like, hey, I, I, I've considered suicide or I attempted suicide. Everyone's like, yeah, so what? Like, I heard that story a hundred thousand times, you know? Wouldn't that be great? Like where doing this isn't necessary. We need to talk. So the companies, maybe they need to provide safe place and mechanism for, for us to talk. And then the ones that can talk, because not everybody can talk and not everybody wants to talk or, or is available to talk. But the ones that, for me, talking about this is part of my healing process. Because I was in the shadows so much time that I'm so tired of being, you know. So I need to speak up and hopefully reach people. I have a transgender friend And he's so open about the transition that he normalizes, you know, and that's what we need. You know, it's, it's no more shame, no more stigma. I'm a human being. That's why I am working actually at Expedia as a volunteer for the diversity and inclusion committee and also for the mental health side of things. And I'm sharing my story. I'm actually preparing a tech talk about suicide. Uh, about, you know, uh, telling my story. And so far, uh, just 
just by sharing this with people, I so many people has reached. For example, uh, um, because of the YouTube channel, uh, Dad write, uh, wrote me about his daughter. Uh, she's bipolar, and she's so she's so ashamed of that. That looking at me like talking in YouTube <laughs> about that, like being public, and I'm 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 a person like anyone else. If um, there are HR people who listen to this podcast, if they wanted to create more space for people to talk at their company, how should they approach that? It's a, it's a very touchy subject. And uh, I think you should be very clear about the framework that it's in place for you. I think that the obstacle, the big one, is that you're always preaching to the choir. It's very difficult to engage people that it's not even interested. Like maybe they are suffering <laughs> for a mental illness, but they want to fade it away and, 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 and really don't talk about that. So I think it's difficult because it should be a balance somehow because you cannot be attacking people like talk, 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 talk about your mental illness now. You know, but, you know, if, if you bring it in a regular conversation, I find and the one to one, uh, you know, it's maybe a person is not prepared to participate in a forum of people. Maybe a person is not ready for, you know, for people looking at them like, oh, you're interested in this subject. Maybe you're oh, oh OK. So it's more one on one contacts uh, for me are very important, like taking the time for managers, for HR, taking the time to reach people. I think bringing in outside resources, I think can help, you know, having outside speakers, somebody like Olga, for example, come in and, and share your story starts to normalize it. I think people in HR first, um, getting a little better educated, you know, the, so that when somebody comes in and says, Hey, you know, I've been experiencing depression or I've had suicidal thoughts or whatever that might be for that person to kind of be comfortable with that. Right. And not feel threatened or feel like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do. And am I going to say the right, right thing? And in many ways you made the observation that if I go back in my career, 15 years, say it was much less common for somebody who was gay to be out at work. You just didn't do it just in case, but things changed over time. I think as more and more people became comfortable being out and being themselves. And I feel like, you know, maybe we're 15 years ago, maybe we're 10 years ago from a mental health, mental illness perspective. And all it's going to take is just more people like you and I being willing to talk and workplaces making it, making people feel safe to talk about that stuff. And I think we'll be in a position where you know, again, we don't need to have this conversation in like 15 years time because for many workplaces, for many people, it'll be figured out. So have you think about your next po podcast? Because, uh, yeah. best, best question someone's asked me yet. Uh, that is a good question. I'll figure, I'll figure that out. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a good cause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you a question. You talked before about your mum and you know, the potential for your mom to hear this podcast and, you know, what she would think. And in that she only speaks Spanish, she's unlikely to listen to the podcast. But if you could say something to her about your mental illness, what would you say? Last year, 
my mom suffer from a mental breakdown. Uh, I had to institutionalize her for a couple of months. Uh, she was, uh, her weight was uh, 30 kilos, so she was almost dying. But for the first time, I think she got that she doesn't have to be that strong. So now we can have more conversations about this. And it's because she experimented that herself. She was psychotic. It was very, very bad. And she always was stoic. You know, she was like, wow, like this rock that uh, you cannot beat her. <laughs> like you cannot with my man. So her being in that situation and me taking the decisions was very tough for her. For me also, I, I, I want to die again. There is a thing that she told me that really made me figure out that, man, we have lost so much time in this spiral. And is that I never committed suicide because of you. Oh, mom, we have something in common. So I never committed suicide because of you. And she said, like, imagine people uh, is going to say the father, an alcoholic and the mother, a suicide. So, you know, and I realized that my, that my mom was a human being like me. And that allowed me to be a human being. I felt that I was free. So I would tell her that, I think that the thing we have in common is that we want to stay here and be with each other. Is there anything else that you want to say on the topic of mental illness, uh, suicide, uh, Latino community? What else do we need to say before we're done? For my beloved Latino community, uh, I didn't realize I was a Latina uh, before I was here, to be very honest with you. <laughs> I was a white girl in Caracas. Now that I'm a Latino, I, I can see from other perspective my culture, the good things and the bad things. One of the things that I, I really want to become, and, and I think it, it has became the mission or part of the mission in my life, is talk. We need to talk. Know about fashion, not about body and lose the weight, uh, not about makeup, not about politics. We need to talk as human beings and we need to talk about what it's happening in our hearts, in our minds, in our body without shame. Like shame is one thing that we need to eradicate if possible. I think, I know it's not possible. It's the, the, the machine is working like that, but we need to deal with that in a better way. So if I can do something for someone, it's listen. So I think the power of listening, uh, we are always listening to response. We need to listen, period. And that's it. It's amazing. Well, I might add on the topic of uh, shame and talking, Olga, to me, you are good enough. And I say we leave it there. Yeah, because I'm, I'm about to cry. So a good point to leave it there. <laughs> and that's Olga's story. Sometimes life pivots on moments or in a split second. I have a friend who was hit by a car while riding his motorbike. One moment he was going about his daily routine and the next he was unconscious on the tarmac. The car crash left him in a coma. He beat the odds when he woke up from that coma, but his life has changed forever and every day he fights to get better physically and mentally. 
Olga's life-pivoting moment wasn't an unfortunate accident. It came when she hit bottom and decided that suicide was the way out. Gun in hand and chamber loaded, she couldn't follow through and she decided to give life another shot. Out of curiosity, she fired the gun to see if she would have died. A bang and a bullet in the wall said that she would. Life can change just that quickly. Over time, Olga was able to change. She had her brushes with planning suicide, balancing the reliability of jumping in front of a metro train against the trauma to the driver. But when her wife was out of town and she'd hatched a plan to take another attempt at her life, she made another life-changing decision. She told her wife. She told her what she'd been considering. And from there, let's be grateful. Grateful for a loving partner, grateful for the availability of good medical support that picked her up and put her back on the right track. There's so much else Olga brought up in the conversation from how mental health is treated in the Latino community, in her opinion, and her views on how to change behavior and the importance of professional coaching. She talked about her work at Expedia as an advocate for making change for others. I'm glad Olga is out there, one of the many brave agents of change in mental health advocacy. As we wrapped up our conversation, Olga started talking about what I've come to think of as her core message. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about the things going on for us, particularly our mental health. We live in a superficial time with carefully created online personas. How does mental health fit into that persona? It doesn't, so don't talk about it. But that's our instincts for self-preservation and our desire to fit in. You do have a choice about what you say and what you choose to share. There's a funny irony in Olga's message. After decades of a stoic relationship with her mum, she finally opens up and talks about her feelings and the challenges she's overcome. What happens? Her mum opens up and shares that she struggled in the same way Olga has all these years. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's say we could bottle up Olga's drive to talk about it. Talking about it is the way to, to help. Bottle that up and take it back 20 years and give it to 20 years ago Olga. What could have happened? What would have happened if she'd been able to open up to her mom at that time? What could have happened in their relationship if they'd learned they were more similar than different? That wasn't how Olga's story was meant to shake out. But in this, I think, is my message. Don't wait to talk about it. Don't wait for the perfect time or until you have the perfect words to say it or the, the right amount of knowledge. Just like what you choose to share in social media, you have a choice. So start now and live more of your life open and connected to other people. It's one way you can live more healthily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to find out about new episodes as they're released, you can go to facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes. You can go to uh, at silent super h on Twitter or at silent superheroes on Instagram. Or you can go to silentsuperheroes.com and sign up for our newsletter. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash to help others find the silent superheroes podcast please leave a review on itunes or your favorite podcasting service